It is not our lawyers who have the critical role to play in this culture over the next 30 years. It is us, all of us, who is there to harm us if we are eager for doing good. But even if real persecution should come, Peter says, that's not the worst thing in the world either. God will give us the strength to endure, and we will be racking up the blessings and bonuses in heaven. So steady yourself, Christian brother, Christian sister. Keep your focus on Jesus and carry on. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Who is there to harm us if we are eager for doing good? That's a good question, and it suggests a bit of a strategy, I would imagine, for how to conduct ourselves as Christians in an increasingly hostile culture. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 1 Peter chapter 3. You'll notice that the first word in most translations of 1 Peter 3 is the word likewise, which implies that this paragraph is carrying on an argument introduced and developed in the previous chapter. So let's go back and remember what that was. In 1 Peter 2, 13 to 15, Peter said, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So here, Peter outlines an important principle. If Christians care about the Great Commission, if they care about fulfilling their role as ambassadors of the coming kingdom of Christ, then they need to be mindful of how they interact with the existing authority structures in human society. Christians are not to be known as rabble-rousers. We aren't to be obsessed with reordering contemporary society. And why would we be? We are ambassadors of a coming kingdom whose arrival will shatter all the existing kingdoms of this world into dust. Revelation 6, 14 to 17 describes that scene in vivid language. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Closed quote. The return of Jesus Christ to judge and to rule will be a leveling event of cataclysmic proportions that necessarily reprioritizes our actions and activities in the time between. And so our main job is, is not to right existing wrongs. Our main job is to encourage every man, woman, and child on planet Earth to properly prepare for Christ's arrival. So we target the heart. And of course, change will happen in society as hearts, as people are changed, but we don't target that change. We target the people. We attempt to win whomever it is that we have contact with to the love and lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the general principle. And then in the latter half of chapter 2 and the first half of chapter 3, Peter applies that principle to some hard cases. 
he begins with slaves. A slave is not to rise up and rebel against his or her master. The slave is supposed to try and win the master. After all, according to Revelation 6, king and subject, slave and free, are going to be in the same boat come judgment day. So the most important thing is for every reached person to try and reach other people. Now, here in chapter 3, Peter moves on to another difficult situation, the situation of a believing wife who finds herself married to an unbelieving husband. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of good jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Christianity was enormously attractive to oppressed people in the first century, so much so that it became popular to mock Christianity as a religion of slaves and women. Slaves flocked to Christianity because of what the gospel said about slaves and what the gospel said about people. The gospel said that all people, including slaves, had great value to God. He loved them, he chose them, he called them, he died for them, and he had plans for them. That message resonated, as you can well imagine, with Roman slaves. And the gospel also resonated with Roman women. Historian Rodney Stark says here, women were especially drawn to Christianity because it offered them a life that was so greatly superior to the life they otherwise would have led, close quote. Roman women generally had no say in who they would marry. They were often forced to marry much older men in what were basically real estate transactions. They could be divorced on a whim. They were often forced to abort or expose their babies, particularly if they were female. They had very limited property rights, and they had to endure systematic infidelity on the part of their husbands. Christianity, however, offered something very different. And therefore, Roman pagan women flocked to it in droves. Which is why Peter had to address this issue. Just as he knew that there would have been many Christian slaves hearing his letter read on a Lord's Day morning, so too he knew that there would be many Christian women. Women who would have heard this letter, heard it explained, and then would have had to go home to an unfaithful, uncaring, potentially abusive pagan husband. Surely this idea of being subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake did not apply here in this sort of situation. And yet, actually, this is exactly the sort of situation that Peter has in mind. Peter is particularly interested in impossible situations. The gospel thrives in impossible situations. I love how Edmund Clowney puts it. He says, Peter sees the impossible position of the Christian as a remarkable opportunity to bear witness to Christ, quote. 
That's what this is about. This isn't submission for submission's sake. This is submission for the gospel's sake. These sorts of impossible situations become the stage, as it were, upon which we display our faith and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is where we thrive. This is our opportunity, Peter is saying. So he tells these believing women to go home and to attempt to win the interest of their husbands in the gospel of Jesus Christ by displaying the transforming power of Christ in their own lives. Your husband may not listen to your arguments, but he will observe your behavior. So show him what a real disciple of Jesus Christ looks like. That's where the focus needs to be, Peter says. Spend less time worrying about your appearance and more time worrying about your attitude and behavior. And by the grace of God, you may open a door for the conversion of your husband. Now, obviously, that's a huge ask. But believing women have been reaching their husbands this way for centuries. Peter refers to Sarah as an example that ought to be encouraging, an example from the Old Testament, which actually at first glance does not look like the best choice. If you remember the story in Genesis 18, Sarah was actually expressing doubts about the wisdom of her husband's plan. Genesis 18, 12 says, Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure, close quote. Shall I have the pleasure of children? Sarah is doubting her husband's understanding of God's will for their family. But she followed him anyway, and she treated him respectfully. That's what Peter is saying. Even when you don't understand how this is going to work out, you follow anyway. You treat people with respect, and you trust that God knows what he's doing. That's what happened in the story. Sarah obeyed her husband, and wonder of wonders, it ended up being, because of her obedience, humanly speaking, that the Messiah came into the world. So, God's ways are higher than our ways, and he often does miraculous things through simple, human, hard, and costly acts of obedience. Now, as is often the case in the Bible, we have general principles, and we have reasonable exceptions. In general, Wives should attempt to win a hearing for the gospel in their husband's heart through faithful and respectful conduct. But that doesn't mean that a wife should submit to physical abuse, and that doesn't mean that she should obey her husband if that would mean disobeying the Lord. Wayne Grudem makes that helpful distinction in his commentary on this passage. He says, The submission Peter commands must never go so far as to include obedience to demands to do something that is morally wrong, closed quote. That is well and necessarily said. In verse 7, Peter turns his attention to the husbands. His counsel here is much briefer, presumably because the situation of Christian wives was far more difficult than that of Christian husbands. The section in general is dealing with hard cases, and I think it would be generally agreed that Christian women and Christian slaves had a much more difficult go of it than did the typical Christian man. Typically, if a, if a man, if a husband converted to Christianity, his wife would convert as well. Certainly, he would not face the prospect of abuse or ill treatment. Nevertheless, he would have to adjust. As a Christian man now, there would be certain peculiar expectations, and Peter begins to address those. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, 
so that your prayers may not be hindered. So husbands are not to use their superior size and strength to manipulate or control their wives. They are to lead through consideration and understanding, recognizing the extreme dignity that their wives have as sisters to Christ and heirs of the grace of life. Peter actually threatens husbands here by telling them that if they fail to heed his instruction, it will result in their prayers being hindered. Peter Davids says helpfully here, as the closest human relationship, the relationship to one's spouse must be the most carefully cherished if one wishes a close relationship with God. Closed quote. If you want God to be kind and gentle to you, then you better be kind and gentle to your wife. That's a good word. Verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Closed quote. Verses 8 to 12 appear to function as a sort of general summary. In general, all of you, let's, let's strive for unity, sympathy, brotherly love, tenderness, and a humble mind. This is the sort of lifestyle and attitude that ought to be characteristic of Christians in believing community. These are the sorts of people who can expect a ready answer to their prayers and the help of the Lord in all their trials and tribulations. Hey, Pastor Paul, I want to press in on that a little bit, because while I know there is a lot of potentially controversial material in this chapter, this right here, in my opinion, is the piece we need to take hold of. What I think I'm hearing here is that it is the behavior of Christians in difficult circumstances that ultimately provides our best opportunity to display the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Am I getting that right? Yeah, I think you're getting that exactly right. Uh, and, and I think, as you say, that's an underappreciated reality. According to the Bible, Christian conduct under pressure is essentially an irrefutable apologetic. You, you can push back on our beliefs, uh, but grace under fire is very hard to argue with. So let me play this out a little bit. If godly character in difficult circumstances is the best way to display and commend the gospel— should Christians be praying for favor in this culture? Should we be praying for healing from cancer? Should we be praying that our candidate wins the next election? Or would it actually be better for us if, this sounds crazy, but if we prayed the opposite of all those things, after all, if the light of the gospel shines brighter in the darkness, shouldn't we be praying for darkness? Yeah, I see where you're going with that. I, I definitely understand what you're what you're pressing on, but I, I think it would be better just to say, that maybe this should change how upset we get when things don't go our way. Maybe when God doesn't heal us of cancer, or maybe when he doesn't give us favor in the culture, or uh, maybe when things don't go our way in our personal lives, or however, maybe we should read that as God permitting a difficult season because he believes we're ready to shine a gospel light within it. I think that's true, 
but I, I would still say that we should pray for good health. We can pray for good leaders. We should pray for good outcomes in society. But when darkness comes, when difficulty comes, we should definitely not see that as a loss of divine favor. Rather, we should see that as an opportunity to display and commend God's grace. Amen to that. Let's jump back into the text now at verse 13. Now, back to the matter of how to live our lives and conduct our mission in the world. Look at verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Here we see Peter being eager to help these folks right-size the troubles and the challenges that they were facing. Remember, Peter is eager to keep these folks in the field. He doesn't want them to hide in the root cellar when there is still opportunity for work and witness in the culture. So the first thing he tells them is to be careful not to overestimate the dangers that they're facing. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Again, as we heard from Thomas Schreiner in the first episode, the only specific suffering noted is discrimination and mistreatment and verbal abuse from former colleagues and friends. Close quote. I mentioned in the first episode that Peter wrote this letter around AD 63, and there was no fatal state persecution of Christians in this region until AD 112. That's 50 years. Meaning, most of the people who first heard this letter never faced actual persecution for being Christians. Their kids did, but even then, it didn't last very long. The persecution in AD 112 lasted about a year, and then it was called off. Christians were good citizens and good neighbors, and it was decided that it was not in the empire's best interests to hunt them down. Hear that. It is so easy to hyperventilate and to assume that Social marginalization now will become fatal persecution later. It might, but it might not. And you don't want to miss out on 50 years of harvest because you went into hiding far too early. So chill out, Peter says. The best way to avoid trouble is not by constantly getting into fights with the government. The best way to maintain mission space in the culture is by actually doing good. I mentioned before that it wasn't the lawyers who made space for the Christians in Roman culture. It was the deacons. It was the humble service of the church to the poor. Julian the Apostate is called Julian the Apostate because he was a Roman emperor about 30 years after Constantine who attempted to restore the influence and prestige of Roman paganism after most of the population had at least nominally converted to Christianity. But by that point, it was too late. Christianity had endeared itself to the population largely as a result of their love and service to the poor. And Julian took note of that, and he actually wrote to his own priests encouraging them to copy the example of the Christians. He said, the impious Galileans, or Christians as we would call them today, in addition to their own support ours, and it is shameful that our poor should be wanting our aid, closed quote. Julian wanted paganism to become more like Christianity. 
But of course, that never happened because there was nothing in Roman paganism to motivate or empower this kind of sacrificial service. So paganism continued to fade and Christianity continued to grow, making any further state repression functionally impossible. Hear that, brothers and sisters. It is not our lawyers who have the critical role to play in this culture over the next 30 years. It is us, all of us, who is there to harm us if we are eager for doing good. But even if real persecution should come, Peter says, that's not the worst thing in the world either. God will give us the strength to endure, and we will be racking up the blessings and bonuses in heaven. So steady yourself, Christian brother, Christian sister. Keep your focus on Jesus and carry on. That actually seems to be precisely what Peter is saying in verse 15. Verse 15 is notoriously hard to translate into English. We know basically what he's saying, but there is no easy way to express what he is saying in the English language. The Greek word there is hagiacite, which is similar to the word we all know from the Lord's Prayer, translated as hallowed be thy name. Therefore, we might be better to understand Peter as saying, in your hearts, hallow Christ as Lord. Understand Jesus as large and in charge. Remember that Jesus is not responding to events. Jesus is ordaining events. So if he has you in a certain situation, he obviously must have work for you to do there. So prepare yourselves. That's what Peter says next. Always be prepared to make a defense or to give an answer to anyone who asks you a question. So live visibly as a Christian and anticipate questions from your unbelieving friends and neighbors. That is the essence of Christian witness in a hostile culture. And when you engage with your unbelieving friends and neighbors, make sure that you're doing it with gentleness and respect. If you're an authentic Christian and you are engaging the culture with gentleness and respect, then if people hate you, you can at least be confident that it is simply because you are a Christian and not because you're a cantankerous jerk. Because persecution because you're a cantankerous jerk actually doesn't do you any good. It doesn't earn you any rewards in heaven. If, if your neighbors hate you because you're arrogant, opinionated, and unhelpful, that's on you. You don't get any credit for that. So make sure you are conducting yourself as an actual Christian. If you do that and you suffer for it, well, then that's okay. In fact, that's more than okay. That's the Jesus way. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This closing paragraph in 1 Peter 3 has a pretty straightforward message, but it winds through one of the most confusing references in all the Bible. Peter is saying to those folks that it has always been costly to bring friends and loved ones to the place of salvation. It has always required you to pay a social, financial, and sometimes even a physical price. 
Jesus paid a price to bring you to God, and you will likely have to pay a price as well to bring your friends and loved ones to God. That's the basic idea. But as you can see for yourself, there's a fairly significant landmine that we have to navigate our way through. What does Peter mean when he says that Jesus, in the Spirit, was preaching to the spirits in prison who formerly did not obey during the days of Noah? We don't have time to sort through this interpretive challenge here in detail, so we'll stick a flag in this and come back to it, God willing, by means of an excursus. For now, I'll just give you the main options. A great many people over the centuries have understood this as a reference to Christ's descent to Sheol on Holy Saturday. All throughout Christian history, churches have taught that after Jesus was crucified on Good Friday, he descended to Sheol, the realm of the dead, to release the souls of Old Testament saints and to announce his victory to the spirits, the fallen angels, now in prison. So we'll call that option one. By the way, there are plenty of people who believe in that doctrine who are not convinced that it's being taught in this passage. There are other far more straightforward passages in the New Testament that teach this. So you can believe the doctrine and not see it here. But many do see it here. Many think that's what's being said, so we'll call that option one. Option two is to understand Peter as saying that Jesus is the spirit of prophecy and that he was working in and through the preaching of Noah in Noah's day. He was preaching to souls, to people whose spirits are now in prison. They weren't then, obviously, but they are now. That interpretation is also grammatically possible. So you can think of that as option two. Thankfully, as I mentioned, the main point of the paragraph lies pretty close to the surface. Peter is saying, it's always been hard to witness in a hostile culture. You aren't the first. If the Lord tarries, you won't be the last generation to pay a price for faithful witness in a fallen world. It's always been that way. Whatever he means by the illustration of Noah, at the very least, he means it certainly was that way in Noah's day. It has never been easy to swim against the tide of culture. It has never been easy to say that the wrath of God is coming on this generation. If you do that, you need to be prepared to pay a price. Now, as for that line, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, Peter's not speaking in a mechanical or ritualistic way. He makes that plain when he says that baptism saves us not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, if your baptism represents your faithful appeal to God for forgiveness through the person and work of Jesus Christ, then it is saving, not because of the ritual itself, but because of what you are expressing in and through the ritual. Thanks be to God. Yeah, I love the balance you strike there at the end. The problem isn't with rituals per se. The problem is with rituals apart from faith. Yeah, absolutely. Baptism is real if you come to it in faith. The Lord's Supper is real if you come to it in faith. These are means that God has given to us as a way of expressing our faith and trust in him. Yeah, that's good, and a helpful distinction. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word 
is a lamp unto my feet. 